Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome. Fall in love with an extra dreamy edition of Thrash and Treasure, the torture chamber musical comedy podcast that played charades in front of the mirror but lost with zero points. And speaking of lost, where am I? Shit. Oh, where I am, Aaron Ware, and I am joined by another iconic West End diva on the dreamboat tonight. And with this diamond here, this must make our show the rough. So let's play ball with this smooth MVP's career that bounced off in bounces before running with the ball past the guys and dolls and being a team player and terrific company makes this captain great at using his one voice for communicating doors, opening for South Asian opportunity and representation. Because when champion is running through your blood, driving you to bend it like Beckham, you get to live out your lifelong today's chosen dreamsicles on the West End. And although Layla, Madge, Nun, the Emperor and the Nightingale watch over the tree of life whilst they scoff down jelly bees and tea under the far pavilions, you be Romeo and or Juliet to scoff at this big store of pleasures. So from our torturous little shop of horrors, we sweep up a huge Aussie g'day and wipe the dirt off the windows so we can suddenly see more of this remarkable artiste who has soared to wuthering heights with an unbroken wings. Where Rumi has it, he met the good woman of Setsuan, the same one who sets you auntie against your other auntie when your cousins go to war in the Mahabharata, which leaves a lot of habeas corpses. Then, like my dreams, the cook's clock strikes midnight in the world of Williams, and I turn back into the boy in the dress, which offends the father and the assassin, Mr. Stink. But that's okay, because like the right wing always says, let's go, Branded, and right is east and east is east, as we extend a warm welcome to the torture chamber and come fall in love with, oh wait, I did that one. I should rub it off like a lad's lamp, but that would be too sultry for this salty sultan who was left insulted and assaulted when Jafar resulted to halt the Aladdin live from the West End pro shot that Disney has spent two years teasing us with. So cross that tease and dot the double I's, then flip them over in excitement, because we wished upon a star and bippity boppity booked our own prince charming it's the one and only sir irvine iqbal yay welcome to the torture chamber finally how's it going goodness gracious oh good thank you wow what an entrance yeah awesome amazing entrance i think you got i think you got everything in there didn't you i think i did i accept a few tv things like the bill yeah yeah no i think it was was all there we don't care about all of those things they're not important that's it and the bill's long gone anyway so exactly and casualties like the yeah the law and order for new york Oh, is it? Like everyone from Broadway has been on Law and Order. And if you haven't, I call you a Broadway unicorn. If you haven't been in Casualty, but you're from the West End, then you are a West End unicorn. But you are not, sir, unfortunately. Oh, okay. But that's all right. And, and I, did I pronounce your name right? Irvin Iqbal, you did, yes. Yeah, awesome. Okay, that's all right. To be honest, I really don't care by the time I get to the end of that. I just don't yeah, yeah, want yeah. to die. <laughs> I can fix it up in post. That's fine. But anyways. I don't care either but because it's an amazing entrance. So I don't care anyway. Call me anything now. So I just won't call you late for dinner. But anyways, how are you going? <laughs> yeah, yeah, really good at the moment in the, in London, back in London. Very hot here at, at the moment. But yeah, just glad to be back and, you know, enjoying the summer here. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's right. You had been in Southern California for quite a while, I believe. Yeah. But we'll get to that because i got a few questions about that. Now, just one thing I've um, thrown in there 
for the listeners at home, when I first accepted the invite to you, the plan was to do Aladdin because there was this pro shot that Disney has been teasing us with, which you have confirmed to me that yes, it exists. It's supposedly coming. It's on certain websites here and there. No news? No, no news. I mean, what? We filmed it uh, in 2000, <laughs> 2019. Yep. They teased it was coming out, I think, in COVID. And then for some reason, it didn't come. And I don't know what's going on with it. I don't know where, I don't know if it'll come back, when it's going to get released. But I mean, we saw it. The cast managed to see it. Ooh. Oh, wow. We saw a recording of it. Visually, it just looks fantastic, you know, and you've got all the greats, you've got all the originals, Mr. Freeman et al. And it's and it looks and sounds fantastic. But unfortunately, I don't know when they're going to release it. Yeah. And an Aussie Aladdin. Yes, you had an Aussie Aladdin, yes. Come on, Disney, make a star out of another Aussie. Goodness gracious me, like there aren't enough of us in Hollywood already. It was nice, though, because you had this like international cast. You know, you had people from Oz, you had people from the States, you had people from the UK. So it was like this lovely melting pot of uh, theatre people, which normally I think it's always kind of like American coordinated, isn't it? It's mainly American or all original cast members. But I thought it was quite nice this time that they mixed the bag a little bit. That's it. Look, I can't wait to see it goodness gracious me i did see it live i saw it live in melbourne right did you see it with heber was heber the uh, was was jasmine when you saw it yes yeah she's fantastic yeah she was um and um right. I, I had a performer named gareth evans i believe a performer from new zealand or right. at, at least polynesian descent so I'm not sure. He's coming up in another show at the moment. I saw his name and I was like, oh, I remember. Uh, Beauty and the Beast. That's right. That's the Disney right. connection. I knew there was something there. Because we actually have a Bal who is of South Asian descent or Indian descent. I saw that, which was great. I mean, that must be a first time for the Auss- Aussies now. Yeah. And believe it or not, which is something I've gone on about. We've never had a Dream Girls tour. Right. We have a lot of Indigenous Australians. Why have we never had a fucking Dream Girls tour that showcases them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This blows my mind that there are a number of shows that could very well showcase our Indigenous community, but they just have not bought it out. But then they'll bring out The Lion King and Hairspray, but they'll also import a lot of, I just said terrible term, obviously, but in actors, when it comes to actors, it's the term it's importing actors from overseas because they want that, "Quote unquote authenticity." I'm not au fait with the, with the Australian um, system. Um, so, mm-hmm. I mean, you tell me why? Why do you think they've not not brought Dreamgirls on tour yet? Yeah. Oh, I think it's that underlying racism, clearly. Really? Because it, yeah, it's that opportunity. They, if you were to to sit down in say the '90s and to name the amount of Indigenous Australian actors, especially female, there was a few males. Right, that were quite known, especially um, someone that's it's very popular, it's sort of like Australia's uncle, if you will, Ernie Dingo. Love the guy, and he, he's done everything, um, film and, and TV and theatre. He needs a theatre named after him, as I keep saying on this show. But in terms of, of females, like Deborah Mailman is one actress, and she sings. Maybe you should start a campaign. That's why I have a show. I have a show to, to yeah. get at every opinion Good and bad. But anyways, we're going to move on now because more serious. There is, haven't watched too much of it, but when I saw the news coverage of what happened in India, 
absolutely heartbreaking um no it's yeah. been what over a thousand people people have, have died or is it more Something than that, like or? that well actually when i saw it was 200 so if it's over a thousand now it's absolutely horrible look this world has gone through enough in the past three years alone yeah it's just absolutely heartbreaking so i thought i, I wanted to take this opportunity especially early in the show um yes yeah, so i'm gonna put some details down below in the description so wherever you're listening to this if you would like to, you are able to donate to the victims and their families to this absolutely awful, awful tragedy. It really is. Very kind. It's, it's, it's very much the least we can do. So if anyone wants to donate, uh, but anyways, we'll move on now. We'll move on to the music. So we'll, we'll get into the, the fun stuff. Have you had any experience with heavy metal, thrash metal, death metal, Glam metal, new metal. Do you know what? When I was at school, everybody was obsessed with Guns N' Roses. Yep. And I know maybe it's a little bit kind of softer, me- softer metal, but we were all obsessed with with that with those albums, Use Your Illusion One and Two, and Axl Rose's voice. So mm-hmm. I have got a little bit of experience because that used to be the the warm up songs before we used to go out onto the sporting fields. They used oh, to yep. put it put put it in on in the coach, you know, on the radio and stick it up full blast. So that's my experience of Guns N' Roses. Awesome. Well, take Sweet Child of Mine to your next group warm up. I'm sure everyone there will love it. Did when you were in America, actually, just on that um, doing mm. uh, Come Fall in Love, did you do group warm ups there, or was that a? Yeah, we did. Oh, you did. Oh, wow. Yes. Sorry. Vocal, vocal, and physical warm-ups. Yeah, definitely. I, I think you find that everybody does that in on shows before, especially before. No, not Broadway. Well, really? Yeah, we, we were talking about with Melanie LaBarry that it's a choice. Yes, 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 yes. It is a choice. It's a choice on Broadway. Yeah, because it's paid for their yeah. time, which I understand. But you're a team, people. You're a family, so that's why I applaud that because it's Americans having a group warm-up. Anyway, sorry, you, it was your answer, not mine. I'm going to shut up. Yeah, we do. We did. We did vocal warm-ups and physical warm-ups because it's it was quite a physical show for some of the performers in it. So yeah, I mean, there was such discipline on that show as well. You know, a lot of people were doing a lot of work behind the scenes as well, even after the show had started. So you know, it was quite disciplined cast you must have felt like rock stars being so full-on and yeah i mean to me it was a whole kind of surreal experience going over to san diego and going to america for the first time being in a you know totally different kind of environment but same environment environment if you know know what i mean but you know working with creatives all those creatives new creatives now and you know and an american cast you know which was a mixed bag of south asian performers as well it was all very much a, a surreal experience for me well let's pretend you are a rock star and you're on tour around the world what would be in your ultimate rock star rider craziest over the top anything i don't want sensible i haven't got anything really i'm nope, I'm, nope, nope. I'm quite easy craziest 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 like, yes i've never <laughs> i don't ask for much uh, what would the craziest be i don't know having your own dressing room maybe well yeah i guess these days which i think is a minimum requirement but i think that would probably be the most craziest what about a smart dressing room that's fully interactive oh that's a good one there we go yeah i'll take i'll take that i always argue with our guests they must think i'm so obnoxious i'm like no sorry crazier crazier but it's just you know let's be fun and your wildest dreams basically 
Let's put them out there. Is it something? Is it something divorce? Something like what Mariah Carey would have yeah. in her in her dressing room, like yes. some flowers or a certain flower that she would have in a dressing room, or something like that. Or a certain like species of puppy that she's had deliberately bred <laughs> for that. Yeah, something like or room temperature water or something like something no, crazy. No, like no, no. My listeners will no. laugh at that because I know every time someone says water, I'm like, no, 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 no. So that's the only uh, question I will ever argue with a guest on to make sure Fair we enough. go crazy. Uh, anyways, we're gonna move on now. Speaking of crazy, we're gonna talk about the metal album because I picked a band from India called Septa, which was an experience, if I can find my notes. Well, do you know what? I saw, I don't know if you've seen this, Flight 666, you know, the documentary on uh, Iron Maiden? No. You've never seen it? It's a no. fantastic documentary because Bruce Dickinson, he, you know, he, he flies planes. Oh, wow. So he, he flew the plane that took the whole band around the world. And they went to countries like India and South America, and people discovered that there was a massive fan base that you would never ever thought, you know, from these kind of emerging economy countries. And India was, there's many people in India that are huge fans of Iron Maiden. Downtrodden societies, if you will, quote unquote, tend to gravitate towards things like punk, metal, yeah. art that expresses that anger, that oppression. So it, it actually didn't surprise me. It's pure ignorance on my, on my for me, because, uh, you know, I, I, me saying that I would never have thought the youth of India or the youth of the South Asian community would be, would find that kind of music pop. So, and it's pure ignorant, ignorance from me because I've been corrupted by that culture, yeah. thinking that all that culture emits is Bollywood culture. So it's a huge ignorant thing from me to think that. Well, I, I, that's, that's, let it be known that I am the white one here, but you are calling yourself ignorant there. So that is on record officially. You no, know, it is. I, I, I was because I'm, 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 I'm like a Brit as well. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, we, we, we have this level of expectation. <laughs> it's, it's my first thought, like as it started to tick over, but I immediately said, like, actually, no, it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. And I'll, I'll get to, to that when we go on to the musical on that sort of, let's say, quote unquote, white perspective of a country like. Like India. This does make perfect sense. It really does. Because like I, in the 2000s, was listening to a Japanese punk band. I mean, granted, they were, they moved to Melbourne to perform. Um, and then actually their visas ended and they got deported, unfortunately. So they're not oh around God. anymore as a, a band in Melbourne. They were called Mac Pelican. So it ultimately doesn't surprise me that people seek out things that reflect how they are feeling inside, because especially today, that is what we're hearing a lot about representation and all that. But the thing is, I think it's always been happening. It's just people had to dig deeper to find it. But anyway, so I listened to this quite a fair bit and I thought the vocals were punk influenced in a few songs, for one thing. I love that they had an overture, but I thought what worked against them was that you can hear those influences that they've obviously gravitated towards. Like you can hear Metallica, especially in the song Search. You're going to hear influences that in, in most in most bands, though, aren't yeah. you? Yeah. I mean, you, all those albums that you heard in the 80s, 70s, 80s and 90s are all influences from the Beatles. So, you know, I think that's where they got their inspiration from, you know, and who they are today if, if they didn't hear those bands. So Something that we talk about a lot on this show, because, you know, we, we do an album every week and we often will come back into another album from the same band later on and see how they have taken this early album or the, that early, those influences that you hear very strongly and how they grew in their own. Yeah. And these guys are apparently still going. 
They've been going since 1998. Uh, they're from Mumbai. Or, yeah. I, I don't get it wrong. Maharashtra. India is actually our eighth country in terms of ratings for this show. Oh, really? So that's the other reason why it didn't surprise me. Yeah, because we actually get a lot of listeners from India. And in that, Maharashtra is the number one region. So a shout out to anybody listening. Thank you very much for listening. It is an absolute thrill to make this show and for anyone around the world in any country to listen. Yeah, okay. So the lineup is Gilroy Fernandez, Aniket Wagmode. Am I, if I'm pronouncing anything wrong, I deeply apologize. I am a moron, as we know, listening to the show. Janice Sayle and Gary Gracious. I'm guessing that's the stage name. Gary Gracious. What a great stage name. I would say it sounds like Gary Glitter's brother, but, you know. I know. <laughs> maybe not the best joke to make. No. That, I don't think that was the original lineup. No, it wasn't. I think uh, Gilroy... Fernandez played with a band called Naked Earth, so I don't know where they're from. They could possibly be from India, but as I say, there was quite a few bands. So I'll have to look into more of that. Um, there's another band called Cryptos, Nicotine, Inner Sanctum, Scribe, and Demonic Resurrection, I believe. Amazing. So apparently there's quite a, a vibrant metal scene in a, India. A big, a big scene. Yeah, it's exciting, like, because it's art, and art I don't think should have boundaries. I've said this, I've ranted about this millions of times, and and so that's why it, it shouldn't surprise anybody at the end of the day. It's not ignorance. No. It's really not ignorance, I don't think. It's just, it's not something you would think of. Exactly. Well, I mean, that, I mean, and, and that's the story in Bendit as well. The girl, you know, the young girl who wants to play football. You know, you never think that, you know, a young Asian girl would be playing football, you know. And I think that's what Gorinda wanted to do was to, you know, was to highlight that, that she found she integrated into a society where it was a massive, a massive thing and, 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 and wanted to be a part of it. So, you know, I think that again, you know, with, with India and the middle classes rising, there's I think culture is changing, you know, over there. There's mm-hmm. probably, you know, th- there was never any theatres over there or mainstream, you know, big commercial theatres. Now there's, you know, there's big theatres over there. There's, oh, wow. there's, mu- you know, multiplexes and and new and new restaurants and everything. So, I think, you know, you you're going to see that massive transition and change. Yeah, I I, so I do love it when the AFL is reaching out now to places like India and and it's got the AFL India to grow young players and and teach them the game and not just india there's japan there's america there is all over the world you know because our australian football is a lot more brutal than soccer let's just say can barely touch someone in soccer and they're on the floor aussie rules we're talking about yes yes you say that it's not at all that they do not react in the same way to a a hit in afl that they do in soccer let's just say that but anyways we're not talking sport we are talking music now just a a few more thoughts on it if i can uh chard i could read those lyrics that was they're clearly anti-smokers that was about smoking really it was uh, the lyrics went terminate your last call vanity your downfall enslavement your life's in flames nicotine death is your end so clearly like they've got some poetic lyrics in them and they've got a message but they haven't got too many albums which i thought was a shame because they have been around for 25 years he metals labels in india i don't know and that's why i picked them because they were signed because a lot of the other bands weren't signed counter culture records where are they based I have no idea. I should look them up. All right. I should do a little bit more research. And I'm not the metal guy. I'm the musical guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wish I knew what the other tracks were about, why he was so grumpy. 
because I couldn't really understand. You know who's a massive heavy metal fan? It's Trevor, who's the genie in uh, in, in London. Oh, okay. He's a massive heavy metal fan. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have a look into that and, and invite him on. I just, uh, last few things on this and I'll round us up. Uh, Circle of Silence was nice, but would have been nice if it was a CD of silence. <laughs> Revolution had lyrics pop up, though I'm not sure even Spotify knew what they were because it was like dot, 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 and then asterisk and stuff like that. So I'm sort of thinking whoever wrote them in didn't know what they were writing in because you can't really tell what they're saying anyways. But I actually thought that was probably the best song of the heavier ones. So I, I gave it three stars. Sounds reasonable. Like they, they, they've clearly got talent, but I thought like, because we're always going to hear the influences. I thought the influences were too strong. Right. Like it sort of sounded like. Bring your own game as well. Bring That's it. That's what we want to hear. We want to hear people, you know, come out swinging. Basically, um, we don't want to hear blueprints of other songs. Yeah. I always think though with new bands, sometimes it's guidance as well, you know, because yes. with new bands, you, you'd always hear influence and you go, oh, those guys sound like that person that guy so oh, that's the yeah. new edge here and and i always think well you know that, that that means there's there's been a bit of a gap there because i don't think they're being guided properly is that okay if you want to sound like somebody else at least come out with some originality so people can recognize you as your own identity yeah. so i think people just want to get songs out there and get streams out there without thinking i yes. i think that happened a lot in the 90s you know as well with mm-hmm. bands trying to sound like other bands, you know, generally. Especially when it came to boy bands and all the boy bands. Oh, boy bands. It was huge. It was, it was a huge thing. Yeah. I mean, I can tell them apart, but they did all sound like a blueprint of the one that came before it. With the girl groups, not as much, I don't think, because Spice Girls and All Saints had their very different sounds. They did. They did. Uh, but anyways, it looks like the scepter is crowning. Ew. <laughs> so we're going to go to an ad break. G'day listeners, Aaron here. With summer about to bring a whole lot of tourists to New York, we thought we better check out what are the hottest tickets on Broadway for this summer season. So for the next few weeks, Spencer the Broadway Spy is going to be diving into the Broadway box office to let us know what's selling like hotcakes. It's Spencer the Broadway Spy. Welcome back to this week's Broadway box office. This is for the week ending in June 4th, 2023. So we're going to talk about this week, because this week was really interesting, because almost every single show this week made less money did, than they did last week. Now, we don't really know why. It could be, you know, they're getting over, you know, the Tony buzz, and so now they're, like, right back into the swing of things. But really interesting, most of the shows that did really well this week are long-running shows. So you have The Lion King, which made around $2.2 million. Remember, this is not profit. This is gross. So you still have to take out whatever it costs to run the show that week. And you had Hamilton with $1.9 million, made about 2% more than they did the week before. You had Wicked with $1.8, Sweeney with $1.8, MJ with $1.5. I think what's happening with MJ is really, really interesting. It's sustained itself around 1.2, 1.3, around there since it opened. And so I think that we can definitely see a long-running show there. We have Aladdin. Again, the Disney shows will always make money. They're really the only shows for kids right now on Broadway. Then you have Funny Girl, which made less money last week than it had the week before, but Leah Michelle was out. 
So again, part of the problem with star casting, with stunt casting, when your star's out, you make less money. Harry Potter with 1.2, Moulin Rouge, again, another long-running show with 1.2, and you've Anne Juliet, which is the only new musical this season that has consistently grossed over a million dollars. Really fantastic, and their average ticket price is really healthy, which means they're not giving away a lot of comps, they're not giving away a lot of discounts. Their average is sitting around $143, which is really great. Parade, again, star, making over a million. Some Like It Hot dipped a little bit back below that million, but I am not worried because they're still making a profit. Then you have A Doll's House with Jessica Chastain. Oh, very close to getting over that million. They close next week, so it'll be very interesting to see what the last week of that is. Then a couple of the shows that I think you should try and run to is you have A Beautiful Noise, the Neil Diamond musical. They were at 69% capacity last week. You have New York, New York, which was at 74% capacity last week. These are shows that I definitely would try to see. And then you have Once Upon a One More Time, which is a new musical, which was only at 64% capacity last week. But again, they're in previews. That's pretty normal capacity for previews. Again, Leopoldstadt. Plenty of tickets available. They're at 55% capacity. They close July 2nd, so go see that very powerful piece and then you have down here a bunch of plays that have capacities under the 70s you have sign in sydney brewstein's window peter pan goes wrong and life of pi are all under the 70s and so again i think it's important to look at all of these it'll be really interesting to see not next week's but in two weeks time the week after the tony awards what difference those awards have made for the shows that win Today, listening to Thrashing Treasure, I'm Aaron, and I'm joined by extra special guest, Irvine Iqbal. Now, Come Full in Love is an adaptation. So what are some other films from India that you think are worthy of, well, it's about time to be adapted for the stage, either West End or Broadway? I don't know if people realize how much money Bollywood makes every darn year. Oh, they're the biggest film industry in the world. Twice as much as Hollywood. Twice, yeah, if, 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 if not more now. Mm-hmm. But I think you, you raise a good, an interesting question. And I think there's so much scope for it. And I'm not surprised that, you know, in the last two years, you've seen three to four South Asian musicals that, you know, mm-hmm. Monsoon Wedding is there, Come Fall in Love, aka DDLJ is there. You know, you had Banging It as well, which opened in, in La Jolla at the Playhouse in La Jolla, you know, which I think is, which, which is also coming to the UK next year. You know, you've got Mughli Azam that did three or four days on Broadway recently. So it does not surprise me that, you know, the scope and the appetite to bring these famous Bollywood films and put them on stage, you know. And and it's also the the same as, you know, the Disney model. I think, you know, a lot of the Disney films were very popular in the 60s and 70s. And Disney obviously created a theatrical wing, which is Disney theatrical. So I think people in South Asia and India, especially, that has control of that content is going to be churning them out. Yeah, I think it's long overdue. I think it makes more sense in the West End than it does America, I think, because... Yeah, I mean, we've got a massive South Asian population in the UK. There's about, a mi- I think there's about a million of us here. So yeah, and, the, you know, there's a lot of community areas, places like Birmingham, you know, London, the Northwest, where there's huge South Asian ethnic minority areas that surround those, those commercial theatres. So I think a lot of people will be tapping into that market. 
segment with with, with content like Bollywood, you know, the Bollywood stories that are, have been have been classics. You know, I mean, our show DDLJ is considered to be the classic, you know, among uh, the Bollywood films because it's it's a family story, it's a love story, um, and it's also a generational story. You know. People have been watching it through generations. Mum and dad's watched it on their own. Then they watch it with their kids. Then they watch it with their grandparents. So it kind of resonates with families. It's also easy watching as well. There's nothing complex about it too. There's no kind of violence. There's Bugger. no criminality, no drugs in it. It's all very kind of like oh, sanitized, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised that the content is transferring and it's going to be adapted you know we see it we, we see it now already mm-hmm. well they're just gonna to have to buy a hell of a lot of defibrillators for backstage for the dancing because i have sent a lot of musical oh, numbers yeah. over the years and goodness gracious me to do that live eight shows a week would be killer uh but speaking of which we are going to move on to what was essentially a i'll say quote unquote a bollywood inspired musical for the west end originally called bombay dreams which you were a part of the cast i was as part of the original cast yes awesome yeah i got involved in that in 2002 Mm -hmm. and i was kind of lucky actually because i just kind of come to london graduated and done a few musicals and then this south asian musical came along that andrew had written with ar rahman um, and mira and i was really lucky to to land that gig and be part of an, a, a, the original cast in that. When you say Andrew, of course you mean Andrew Lloyd Webber, and here you dropped this name. ALW. Yes. And Andrew Lloyd Webber, please come on here and chat with us. We actually did a workshop because they wanted to bring it back. Uh, we did a workshop of it in 2019, 18. Andrew's wife, I think, had taken control of it with another director called Amit Gupta, who's a television director, and they wanted to change some of the themes around it like make Rani more of a central theme rather than Priya and, okay. the, you know, the Bollywood producer part. So they changed it and we did it with about six or seven actors and it worked quite well, I thought. It was ironic that I was the only original cast member in another workshop for a new adaptation of, of a show that we did. There were some really good ideas yet, but it, but it never materialised to anything. Yeah. Well, I, I had a lot of thoughts listening to it. Yeah. Some good, some bad. I'll, I'll be honest, straight up. Musically, very, very rich and lush as one would hope from from anything inspired by bollywood and if you get anything less than rich and lush don't bother uh lyrically i thought though that's where it was let down i think you you got to know the kind of background and history to it a lot of the numbers yeah. in the musical were actually not originally composed oh, okay some of them like chaya chaya were from bollywood films that were very popular during the 90s that were composed by ar rahman so what Andrew did was a hybrid album of songs that are famous from Bollywood films mixed in with Andrew's songs that he wrote. You know, for example, Journey Home is written by Andrew. Uh, well, I think the music's by Rahman. And I think they worked together on the, you know, on the ballady songs, with the bit, you know, the big up-tempo songs like yeah. Chaya Chaya and, and all of those were all from Dilse, which is a very famous Bollywood film. So it's actually not kind of, when we say original composition, it's a hybrid composition. Yeah. Well, it's it's Raman's music. He's allowed to do with it what he chooses. Exactly. Basically, reappropriate the way he wants. It's in in a few parts. I will say story wise, it felt like 
this is the India white people know. We've got the slums, we've got the Bollywood. You know what I mean? Like it, it's sort of, and we've got the trains, we've got a wedding. It, it sort of felt yeah. like all the cliche things, which I thought was a little bit of a letdown because here you have this incredibly vibrant show. It the music, I relate it to Avita because I have always said the music of Avita is exciting especially when she goes into Buenos Aires and, and it dun, 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 and it starts, you know, your, your blood starts pumping when you're listening to it. That's what happens here. So that's why I thought some of the, the sort of cliche lyrics did sort of let it down a little bit. Yeah, I think we have to remember where we were at that time when it first yeah. came out. It was, it was 2002, you know, yes. I think London and the UK were trying to launch a massive kind of Indian summer in the in the UK because I remember okay. like there were there, there were department stores like Selfridges that had converted themselves and done kind of South South Asian decoration there were a lot there were a few more kind of South Asian plays on so I think they were trying to introduce the culture but I think you know I think you I think you're right and I think your comments are quite fair in terms of you know of the of the book and again it's a, you know I it's one of those things it's a rags to riches story you know and people love the underdog you know it's it's a story of the underdog and and people love that and you know and sometimes it's quite brechtian isn't it where if everything is laid out on the table for you and it's all clear and you know you don't have to worry about anything i mean it, there's nothing shakespearean about plot or anything like that i think it's just pure entertainment where for two two and a half hours people can watch something be be entertained and hear some see, see some great dancing because i thought the choreography the choreography in it was fantastic you know Anthony Vast and you know uh, nicola Trahern did the choreography and the, the choreo was great and and there was, there was just be entertained for two and a half hours yeah and look and and you you want that i've done exactly what i criticize people of and i've looked at this through a 2023 lens yeah. in terms of that um so it 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 shouldn't i guess not I would, um, what's, I, I want to I'd not say offend because it didn't offend me at all. Like the, as I say, the cliche parts. So did it have characters in the slums be like, if you do us wrong, you'll meet adversity and stuff like that. It sort of felt like, well, this is, you know, the India that you're going to see in American movies and, and British movies yeah. and stuff like that. I will admit I've been to a foreign country where I had a run in with somebody on the street that I did not give money to because I didn't know I was meant to give money to them. Right. And it, it wasn't a Caucasian country. However, that was one little moment for 30 seconds in what three or four days that I had the most amazing time mm. you know what I mean so I don't look at that country and go well the homeless on the street or whoever hang around the tourist attractions demanding money from the tourists and if you don't they threaten you so I'm never going back there again no I want to go back there so badly because it yeah. fucking beautiful country like goodness gracious me and and heartbreaking to walk through the jungle mind you like goodness gracious so heartbreaking yeah, so it's sort of that's what it felt like that, that they picked out those moments to then put in the story, which is fine on a story level, but don't ham it up with the lyrics, I think. Like, because that just sort of, it, I think that was the where the issue was. Um, look, my dad's British. It was very British. The lyrics were British. Sorry, I'm shutting up now. That's your. No, 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 no. I think, I think you make some fair criticism around it. And I, I've always thought that we 
were a little bit early on Bombay. You know, I thought we could have gone maybe waited a little, maybe five more years um, for it to have, you know, for just to develop it a little bit more. Because, I mean, half the cast weren't even South Asian in the first place. And that was one of the things that I was very, very wary about, especially when it went to America. But nowadays, obviously, you know, 2015, you have this massive melting pot of talent in the UK. But back then, uh, I, I would say probably only 25% of the cast were actually of South Asian descent. Yeah. So that, and that's what I, I speak of before with Indigenous Australians, that I will go see The Lion King and there's maybe three or four Indigenous Australians, but everyone else has been brought over from overseas. Yeah. And okay, yeah, fair enough. There are I completely agree people in African countries that do deserve breaks because they've got the talent too. Yes, but they need to find a balance, I think. At the moment in Australia, it's very outbalanced. So Hamilton, no. Hamilton was 100% Australian cast. All right. Well, that's good. Finally. <laughs> Finally. You know, that's fine. Are they, are, are they going abroad to get bums on seats, though? Or are they going? No. Or, or, they're, or they're just being lazy about it? They're just being lazy about it, really. Okay. Well, the, well then that's a gatekeeper issue, then. Who yeah. are the gatekeepers in the, in the, in the, uh, in the industry who are who are doing that and who are, who are who are suppressing Australian talent because you can't have you know this has been my biggest bed bug since the yeah. beginning of time you know you can't have an industry full of talent and not use it yes yes you can't ignore you can't ignore it if if they have built a wealth of experience over ten years over fifteen years over twenty years over twenty five years and you ignore them and look elsewhere and don't respect that. Then who? Then you have to ask the question: Who are the gatekeepers in the industry yeah. that are preventing access? You know, and, and and you go to them, you know, and you and you and you expose expose their flaws and say, look, you have you have the talent base here. What are you doing? And this has been my advocacy since time in memoriam, especially being a member of the um, you know, the, the equity the <laughs> equity uh, group that that I, I represent um, amongst actors, um, the race equality committee, and. You know, I, for me, it's never ever made intellectual sense. You know, and the thing is, I never, I never know why I'm actually talking about it or should have to talk about it when it exists. But it, and it, and it blows my mind that that these people, whoever these people are, the producers, the directors, the casting people, the writing people, the actors that you previously worked with, the directors you previously worked with, you know, that are not helping and platforming. I, 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 it, it blows my mind. At the end of the day, we can point the fingers, yes, at producers, I agree. But we also have to remember there, that there are creators and writers who are still alive that sign off on these casts. Oh, it's not just producers. They're the bottom line. They, they're the ones that need to say, this needs to happen. Yeah. The gatekeepers, it's an unlimited list, you know. Yeah. Oh, it's, yes. It's in, people of influence. It's directors. It's writers. It's Marketing. It's even actors. It's even other actors, you know. Yeah. God knows how many times people have approached me and said, you know what? We're looking for a, I don't know, a South Asian girl who's 30 years old for this part. Can you recommend me somebody, you know? We had this massive pantomime symposium, which I was not present because I was working, unfortunately, because we raised massive issues in the UK about panto lacking representation, you know, and it's been going on forever. When they had this event to talk about this issue, because we said, look, let's have an honest conversation about this. Let's get everybody together. Let's talk about it. I wasn't there. But one of the things that the producers were saying is, oh, we've advertised on Spotlight. Okay, what else have you done? 
What other things are you doing? And this is it. It's just that it's the lack of intelligence and, and it's using instinct, you know, utilizing your, you know, your resources. You can create a theater company. You can put a, a stage production on a stage, but you can't utilize your resources. Again, never does never makes intellectual sense, sense to me. So, you know, these are these are the things that are, are I find and I sympathize with your point that how can you not with the talent that you have in Australia, people mm-hmm. like Ainsley and all those fantastic performers you're over there. How can Hamilton not have an all Australian cast? It's, yeah. it, you know, w- why do we have to get other people from other, other countries? You know, why can't we create and nurture our own talent? Never understood it. Never yeah. understood it. Aaron. Yeah. No, neither do I. When it came to Aladdin, it was Ainsley was Australian. James Michael Scott was it Michael James Scott? Oops, I've I've mixed his name up. Sorry, Michael James Scott. He is a brilliant performer, right? And he deserved his award. But we do have heavy set or bearish Indigenous Australian male actors in Australia. Yeah. So it did not make sense. Yeah. For them to bring over, it, it would have made sense for them to have brought over James Monroe Iglehart, yeah, because he was the Tony. If they want bums on seats, if this was about bums on seats, you get the name, yeah. They've got the millions of dollars, Disney theatrical. Why, why, if you if you want bums on seats, you bring the big name, you bring James Monroe Iglehart over to Australia to play the part, you pay out all that money. No, they bought the understudy and made a star of him in Australia. What the fuck? Oh. Sorry. No, no, no. I, 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 I share your frustration. Sometimes, though, yeah. what, what what equity do is they do kind of cross cultural contracts. So they say, okay, if you've got ten people working in the UK, we'll allow ten people working. So you have this kind of like exchange yeah. program that goes on. I, I am aware of that, um, which I think that's fair enough because it's not unreasonable for some for some people to get experience in other countries. But I think if you're doing it predominantly and the majority of your cast is then it's going then it then it's wrong so yep. you know there are there are some circumstances where i think where it's part of a process and there's other circumstances or the other argument is that you can't bring if you have a cast of 40 you can't bring 30 people over from another country when you've got your own talent you know in your in your yep. own country that's what is 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 the specific issue there yeah yeah only once in all the shows i've seen only once would i say i've seen a broadway star or a western star on an Australian stage. And that was Avita with Paulo, who played Peron, or Paulo Schott. Is that how to pronounce his name? What? Like he was, he's the only person I would say he's a Broadway star or a West End star that they've brought over here to get bums on seats. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't think it is about bums on seats. I think it is about they're not willing to tap into the industry that we have got here or the communities. And there are a lot. The thing is, we've okay, we had Adam Richard, an Australian comedian on the show. He's been on here twice. He gets called up for auditions for the genie, Edna Turnblad. But it's to fill in the time so they can cast the person from overseas. It's so that they can say, hey, look, we auditioned as many Aussie actors as we could find, but we couldn't find any, so we have to go to America to find them. And it's a cop-out. It's a cop-out, people. We've got some goddamn talented people here and in New Zealand. There are, but it's just a matter of tapping into it. I mean, we had an American genie and we had 
Um, we had a British genie. We had Leon Craig. I don't know if you know who, uh, about Leon Craig, who's no. an absolute huge talent. So I think, you know, so I think sometimes as well, they, they're training the younger guy up while the established person is in is in play. Too. Yeah, I, look, I, I can totally understand that. But there was one Helpman Award given to the genie and it went to the American guy, not his yes. New Zealand replacement, you know? Although in Australia, like Chicago can have five tours and every time it can win best musical. Isn't that bullshit? Not best revival. It sounds very boring to me that if the cycle is the same shows all all the time, again, then there's something wrong with the system. I'm not uh, experienced with the Australian system, how many theatres or who it's owned by or if if there's a monopoly over there. Generally, if the same stuff is being churned out, then then there's monopoly and control. So... Maybe it's time that the competition changed. Yeah. Three shows going in Melbourne at the moment. And Juliet, um, Cursed Child, and I think Mary Poppins. Oh, Mary Poppins. Those nanny musicals again. How many nanny musicals have we got? Mary Poppins, King and I, Sound of Music. What happened with all these composers? They did, were they missing their mothers or something? I, I, I've never understood it. I don't know. I don't. I have no idea. When it comes to when you look at the history of storytelling, there's always characters with damaged parentage. Either one of them's died, which most often the case, one of them has died, or the father's cold. And yeah, it's, it's a very common thing. I wrote three novels and I killed the father off before the first novel started because you need that <laughs> sympathetic thing. For the main characters. Right, let, let's hear it. But let's not hear, let's not listen to these stories being told over yeah. and over and over again. Yeah. I look, it's the, I think the third or fourth Mamma Mia tour. Right. <laughs> uh, but remember, we have never fucking had fucking dream girls once. Um, I just want to finish off quickly this music, but I've got a question because I've, I actually have a question about representation. Yes. Now, okay, so I thought the story, he wants to act and be a star. It was a bit Star is Born. Yeah. Not that I've ever seen a Star is Born, any of the incarnations of it. Now, I thought story-wise, or at least not story-wise, I think, let's say song design, right? It felt like there was a few, this is another criticism, because look, I, I gave it three and a half stars. So what I did like of it was definitely the music a lot more than the book or the lyric, but the music was so exciting. But in terms of the song designs, it felt like they've gone, we need this story beat from Rent. So we need a light my candle moment. And that's where we get, uh, so you want to be famous or whatever it was called, right? It sort of had that vibe to it that she's enticing him into this world. And when I heard it, I'm like, hey, it's their version of Light My Candle. So there was a few moments that did feel like, it felt like there was a Buenos Aires moment where they arrive in the big city. You always get that. Yeah. I think you always get, when a new musical comes out, you will hear some element in the songs of a previous musical that's been successful. Yes. I, I, I defy anybody who says that does not happen. You know, I, I, work, I, I do a lot of work in workshops and I always, and then people always say, oh, that sounds like that show. We can put that little ditty in there. You know, so it, it's intentional. It's always intentional. Yeah. We need a quote unquote moment, fill in your own blanks there of what moment it needs. Yeah. And then just a, a quick question Was this tiring to do? Yes. I mean, yes. I, I was ensemble. <laughs> I was playing cricketer, which was this um, limbless beggar on a, on a trolley. And so I was on my knees for like 20 minutes of the show. And actually, I didn't get offered that part because someone left halfway through rehearsals. So they gave me that part. And then I understudied the producer's part as well. In fact, I asked Stephen Pimlot, I said, okay, if that person's leaving the show, I would like to have his understudy because I always wanted to do something more, you know, rather than play my own 
on ensemble part and Stephen Pimlock who was a lovely lovely man said yes and and gave me the opportunity and I got on a lot in that part when I when, when we did the show which was which was a great experience for me but it was very tiring you know because if you're ensemble in a Bollywood or in a massive Indian musical you're guaranteed to be dancing all the time but um yeah it was a good work has it been your most tiring job so far um yeah Probably one of them. Yeah. I think you've got like Bombay Dreams, you've got the Far Pavilions, you've got Bend It Like Beckham. I think, you know, one thing that I thrive on, you know, especially if you're an ensemble cast member, is having a lot of traffic on stage. There's nothing worse being like in the opening scene, waiting for the whole show to finish and you're in the last scene. So if you're an ensemble <laughs> member doing as much work as you can on stage, I think is always the best thing. Best places in the audience. <laughs> you will hear a lot of people who play principals now, you know. Yep who probably have obviously gained experience and that's why they're being offered principal roles. But, you know, they're, some of those roles are in like in scene two and scene nine and that's it. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of them miss kind of like the constant stage exposure and the different scenes and the transitions and everything like that. You can work that more in plays a little bit because um, yeah. I've transitioned a lot in and out of musicals and plays, which has been nice. And if you're, if you're part of a, a real ensemble, I mean, a lot of musicals are ensemble pieces like Assassins and, you know, Company. So if you're lucky to be in a big ensemble piece where you're in stage most of the time, then it's great, I think. Yeah. That's it. Just two more thoughts. Uh, A.R. Rahman, I think he won the Oscar for Slumdog Millionaire, did he not? He did. Yeah, he did. He did. Yeah, for, for um, Shai Ho. Oh, that's right. Of course. Yeah, the song. I was thinking of um, Best Score. But yes, yeah, of course he won for the song. I did know that. Uh, so it, it, you're listening at home. If you're not familiar with any of the people or things we've spoken about so far, you would know that. Certainly, Danny Boyle, Trainspotting, genius filmmaker. Also, with, with Rahman, you listen to some of his early stuff, like Water mm -hmm. and Dilse, you know, before he became... I would strongly recommend your listeners to see to seek out some of his early material, which is, that's where his genius was gauged by Mr. Lloyd Webber, because he yep. said, look, there's this guy here, we need to nurture him and we need to, you know, platform him. So He was young, too. He was very young, very, very young. That's it. Okay, and Thomas Meehan, Meehan, however you pronounce it, from Annie fame, wrote the book, I believe, did he? Of Bombay Dream. Yeah, his name was... No, on... it was Mira, Mi Mira Sayal. Wrote, wrote... Thomas is getting credited on Wikipedia. Really? Yeah. Not to argue with you at all. Maybe the American... It might have been the American Bombay Dreams. Yes. But the British one was written by Mira, Mira Sayal. Playwrights, Mira and Thomas. Oh, right, fine. We, it could be wrong. We know we, we go through this all the time. We clarify things with people. Did you do this thing? As an original cast member, Mira was the only person I remember in the, in the, in the rehearsal room. Yeah. Wikipedia is probably wrong. New to me. New to me. That's it. Anyway, so looks like we woke up from them dreams. It's time for a break. G'day listeners, Aaron here. While you're topping up your coffees, did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time? Go to www.thetonistontales.com dot com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of the Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. 
Landing with a thud that echoes throughout the whole cottage, Toniston instantly rips off the manky shoes gifted to him by Milford and tosses them into the corner behind a blue barrel. Without a second thought, the bully races down the hallway to the backmost room of the house and leaps behind his uncomfortable makeshift hay bed, then waits, and waits, and then waits some more, until finally, what seems like an eternity later, muffled growls start vibrating through the thin walls of Cubpaw's cottage. He tries to control his breathing, but his heart is racing way too fast. Toniston ducks down further. Nothing should be able to see him, but he can't be sure they won't smell him. The gruff growling grows louder. Toniston presses his ear against the cold, chipped, chalky wall. He thinks he can make out phrases like, Where is it? And, Give us the merge, though not much else. It's all too mumbled, and he's shaking too much. But it doesn't matter anymore. The front door of the cottage slams open with a harder, louder, cracking thud than it ever had before. A dozen or so stomping footsteps enter. The cottage shakes uncontrollably as if it is as terrified as our friend the bully is. Toniston panics. He's trapped in a corner with a slew of sharks on his trail. He makes a sudden rash decision. Ripping aside the thick animal hide curtain, Toniston leaps through the small oval-shaped window headfirst, landing on a crate filled with hay sitting outside it. Mustering every ounce of manliness he has not to react verbally as he lands with a crunch on the sharp, pin-like hay. It pierces his skin in several places, but thankfully, in his panicked state, the bully becomes numb to the pain. Counting his blessings, but not his chickens, Toniston struggles out of the crate by throwing his legs over and levering himself up, causing the coral underneath his feet to snap. He loses balance and tumbles. To describe the pain of tumbling face first down a steep hill of hard, sharp, deadly shaped coral would require far too many swear words than this author would be allowed to publish, so let's just say it hurt a lot. With one last somersault, Toniston's legs fly first over the cliff's edge. Crunch. His left hand grabs hold of the outmost jagged knob of coral. The stocky body of the ten-year-old child sways rapidly back and forth like some sort of death-defying pendulum. He gasps for air, or from shock, not even Toniston can tell. All he knows is above him, a deadly coral cliff and deadlier sharks. Below him, larger, sharper coral under a sea of giant, sharp spikes of natural metal. His head throbbing and vision too blurred with bright red splotches to be able to see clearly for too long. His face is dripping with blood. It runs down his shirt front, tickling him in the process. But all he can do is swing there. It's moments like these that a boy really needs his mum. Unfortunately, while Toniston's life hangs in the balance, on earth his life was dishonestly being celebrated by all at Gumbire Primary School after news of the bully's disappearance had spread like wildfire through the tiny town, then onto the music industry before eventually reaching the wider world. Rock music fans, specifically those of Muzzletop, had flocked to the outskirts of Melbourne, leaving wreaths, band posters, and hand-drawn tributes to honour the missing son of their favourite singer. Although none of them knew the boy, many had seen him standing on the side of the stage of the band's concerts alongside Tina. Also, at the time of his disappearance, hundreds of the world's entertainment media lined the streets outside the school and sadly outside Tina's house. 
wanting any word they could get their greasy hands on. The gossip came in thick and fast as snide, bored neighbours took it upon themselves to speculate and make up stories for their five minutes of fame. Inside the house, the phone ringing 10, 15 times a day from nosy TV stations, hounding the poor, terrified mother, there was no escape. And whilst Tina was never polite in her declination, still they persisted. Call me again and I'll punch you in the nose, she promised. The school's principal, Mr. Patterson, had himself realised how cold and nasty it would look if Toniston Turnbull's former victims didn't at least pretend to mourn his disappearance. And thus, with an added paranoia of becoming a suspect, Mr. Patterson set out to overcompensate with memorials and dedications to the boy who touched all our lives with his love of animals. Mr. Patterson felt satisfied his school's image was intact. The largest memorial from the school came in the form of a service in the gymnasium. With every student, teacher, news reporter and local police in attendance, Mr. Patterson sought to show the world just how much Toniston had meant to the school. The service would have made the bully puke. From the awful school choir butchering his least favourite songs, to the obnoxious releasing of the white doves, Mr. Patterson may have been satisfied his memorial service paid tribute, but Toniston is far too cynical for that. And yet, whilst hundreds of people sat on the cold plastic seats in the Gumbaya Primary School Auditorium, not one person in attendance truly knew Toniston when he was around. But all alone, in her large house, the animals all shunned outside, Tina Turnbull sits with her umpteenth glass of wine, ignoring the umpteenth phone call from friends, fans and family, but most sad of all, wondering, for the umpteenth time, what she could have said to her only child to have brought the two of them closer together. A now broken photo of Trent Turnbull and an infant Toniston only hours after his birth sits at her feet under the table. Tina simply doesn't care about the million tiny shards of glass cutting up her feet. She just wants her son back. And as if joined at the soul, while dangling from the lavender-coloured dead coral cliff face, somewhere in his head voice, Tina's cries are heard by the boy. His face scrunches up, but then it relaxes. I can do this. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo! Anyways, we're back with Thrush and Treasure. I'm Aaron, and I'm joined by West End star Irvine Iqbal. Now, I've just got a few questions. Now, I know you are pretty outspoken. How important is diplomacy to you now in your career compared to when you first started? I think something changed for me back in 2015. Because for me, it had always been boiling since Bombay Dreams. It had always been boiling. It, it, everything, it, it, it had always been boiling because with my career trajectory, I met lots and lots of people, lots of talented South Asian actors, lots of talented South Asian singers, um, directors, choreographers, dancers, a whole massive talent base that I've accumulated and met over the last 25 years. So Boiling Point got to me on Bend It Like Beckham because I've been lucky enough to be part of the process of creating it through work, you know, creating new musicals from workshop stages. So you see the kind of baby 
you know grow up into the in, into the person but then you also see how the baby gets treated after it's been presented as well so there's like a pre and post process so the post process for me of how that show got treated i was very very angry and i wanted to put my criticisms to you know have a voice about it and then when i joined aladdin a lot of these issues was floating in my head so i said well i need to put it down on paper so i wrote an article which got published in the stage newspaper called Bami tokenism won't cut it any longer obviously we don't use the word the acronym BAME anymore for all the right reasons but back then it, it was flying around all the time Bami this Bami that never heard it to be honest sorry must be a British thing yeah <laughs> I think it, I think I think it was so I, I wrote this article and yep. then a lot of people were kind of agreeing with this line of thought that you know why people of color actors being just given you know token parts you know why have you got Les Mis and it's just they put eponyme as a South Asian girl or an East Asian girl you know why is it always tokenism happening all the time and yeah. you know to be honest with you i think the west end and british theater has been guilty of it for a long long time you know and there were people vocal about it before my time there was a huge generation of people i don't know if you know the guy daniel york you know he's a massive advocate he's always been highly critical uh, of these things he's the head of the ethnic minority committee for equity so i i think that that was the changing point for me and then i got voted on the um Equalities Committee, Ethnic Equality Committee, and have been advocating ever, ever since. Subsequently written more articles, more articles about representation, more articles on, you know, why have we had shows like Les Mis and Phantom and Wicked and Matilda, but we've never had a POC Valjean yet. We've never had a POC Alphaba. Why is it taken in 2023 when these shows have been going on for 15 years? Why all of a sudden do we have a black Alphaba? You know, we've had black actors in the West End for 40 years, 35 years. Why now all yeah. of a sudden? The talent was always there and the shows were always there representing their talent. Things, shows like Memphis, shows like Lion King. The talent was readily available, always sitting there on the corner. Yeah. You know, I've been in the industry for 20, uh, 25 years. Yeah. I know hundreds of black actors and actresses, you know, hundreds of them who I've worked with and, and uh, you know, I know, I know socially. So why, I don't know why all of a sudden it started to happen now, you know, so, so, so late. So these are some of the, these are some of the themes that I've been advocating for. Yeah. Do I, this is something I, I thought was, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, not to promise you not to try to bring this onto myself or anything. I'm just relating this to explain it better to people. When JK Rowling decided to do her little thing, you know, have a little opinions, whatever. I had published three novels and I read someone tweeted out, oh, JK Rowling's transphobic. Well, are there any gay or trans writers out there? Because I want to buy their work. And I kind of felt token, right? Because I thought three years have gone by, mate. Why wasn't I good enough in that time? Why didn't I count in that time? Why did it take someone standing up and being a shithead for you to care? That's what's happened here. In 2020, we had Black Lives Matter. Suddenly everyone's like, oh, I'm going to listen to black music. I'm sorry. Now, now you're going to. What about before? Why does it take this to happen for you to stand up? And why are you telling me? Just fucking do it. And you should have been doing it to begin with. It's not about tokenism. It is not about replacing anybody. It is about counting, full stop, counting all along. I think that that may explain it to people out there who, are, who seem confused that it is about tokenism. It is about shoehorning people in. It's not. It's about counting. Yeah, but it's also knee-jerk as well. Producers, unfortunately, and yes. all the 
are gatekeepers. They react in a very knee-jerk way. Uh, one of which I think the variable is social media has a massive reach value now. Mm-hmm. Um, and anything that's said on social media can c- circulate and 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 create a bad reputation. So they, they do a lot of filtering around that. But the main thing is it's knee-jerk, you know. And they know. Yep. They know the talents existed, you know, mm-hmm. for a long, long time. And I, and I go back to the point about who who are the gatekeepers. It's the same gatekeepers that were in the industry 10 years ago, same gatekeepers in the industry 20 years ago, same gatekeepers in the industry 30 years ago. All right, I accept there's a few that's um, emerging, new, new creatives that are emerging who are all great, who are all very active and, and proactive and want to change things. But the majority of the, of, of the gatekeepers remain the same. Nothing's changed. No, I, I, I completely agree because what's happened is then we're going to have all white ensemble and one or two people of colours in the league. That is not representation there. That is not what I don't think people are asking for. No. Why is that mostly all white and then you, you're, that's where you are shoehorning people and that's when you're doing it for the pats on the backs, people. Fuck off. Go away if you're doing it for a pat on the back. You, we were asking, people are asking for this to be genuine at the end of the day and mm. why wasn't it happening to begin with? Why did it take someone getting fucking shot for you to care? Or for you to tweet out, stop being racist. Who are you talking to? You're literally just saying, stop being racist. Who, who the hell are you talking to? You don't look good by saying it. You look good by having done it to begin with and not being told to do it. I'm sorry, this is your fight, not mine. No, no, no. No, I, you're, you're, Aaron, you're right. But what you've just said, it's the knee-jerk reaction yep. to it all. Uh, Annie lies. And, what, and what's happened is it, that exposes their flaws, is that they are reacting in a knee-jerk way when they should have done it before. So it, exp- and it exposes their stupidity and their ignorance, you know. And now I, now I think, I don't know, I sense a little bit of change, a little bit, but it's crazy to think that we're still in 2023, slow change, you know, is happening. But sorry, you which show did you mention? Not Annie, you mentioned in the show prior to that. Yeah, was it? Annie Live. Sorry, the words just came out. One thing that I found strange in the UK, all the kids are from diverse backgrounds, but all the adult cast, nobody, which I found very, very strange. Same thing happened, you know, on Mary Poppins. All the kids were diverse because on one hand, they couldn't say, do you know what? We're inviting you. Diverse audiences need to come and see the show, see diverse children on stage. No, we'll just put white kids on stage. We're not opening the show to everybody. We'll just have white kids on stage. But then they did have diverse kids on in the cast, but none of the adults were diverse, you know. So it was never... A, 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 I'm talking about Annie, by the way. Um, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. That's never made intellectual sense to me. And also mixed race and mixed heritage parents. I think... People need to go back to square one and think about the word theatre and theatre community. And we bring this argument into into pantomime quite a lot. If you have a theatre and it's part of a community, it is your duty to represent your community on the stage. Otherwise, why are you opening your shows and putting on shows? Who are you putting your shows on for? You depend on the community to come in and spend money so you have revenue in the theatre. If I go into the theatre and see plays or a classical piece or a contemporary piece or a musical and I don't see myself represented on the stage, why should I come back again? You depend on me in order to survive. And if you're putting an all-white cast in all your shows, then you're not connecting with your community, which is what theatre is ultimately about yeah just to, on annie the reason why i said that i was specifically talking about the tv version that they did in america recently oh. where they made a big deal look we've got yeah, yeah. a black annie awesome yes you should anyone any person should well okay 
any little girl should be able to play Annie and some overgrown men because that's always hilarious. However, we've gone through 30 years of I've been hearing people say the words white saviour. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. I'm from a storytelling point of view. And even in my own writing, I'm very conscious of let's not have that sort of boring trope, let's just say. Right. But what they did with Annie Lai, full respect to them for at least trying, but they did not look at the context of what they're doing. Because what they did was they cast Taraji P. Henson as the drunk mother and the old white dude, Harry Connick Jr., as the rich white dude who comes and saves the little black girl from the abusive black mother. And I am the only person who seems to have called this bullshit out because I look at that and I go, whoa, hang on, no, that's not what people were asking for. That's what we've been asking not for, for 30 years. Knee-jerk reactions, you know. But, but we're at the point now people accepted it and people overlooked it because we got a Black Annie, because we got a Black Miss Hannigan. And I don't think people should be just accepting it because you were given it. Look at the context. Yeah. Look at what they're actually saying in that story that the rich white man came along and, no, I'm sorry, full respect to the creatives. They never will think about it because the story's established. That's why. So they, they will never be conscious of the point and the issue that you make. But there's another hilarious thing. I don't know if you remember, if we, if we refer to the Albert Finney film. Okay, yep, yep. They had a character in the film, and obviously in the early 80s, yep. there was a black guy playing a character called Punjab. Yeah, he wasn't in the original, uh, in the stage show, I don't think, was he? No, he's not in the stage show. You know, he's been he's been totally omitted from the stage show, you know. They've got Ali Hakim in Oklahoma, but they haven't got Punjab in Annie. And Punjab was dressed in a colonial white mm-hmm. British butler suit. But going back to your point, it's about the stories are established, but they don't think about the context in, when they adapt it. So yeah. I, I totally agree with you on that. It has to matter. Context has to matter at the end of the day, because what we're going to do is we're going to get 20 years into the future and people are going to be calling out all the things that people are calling for now that we're getting knee-jerked, shoehorned in for being hella racist. That's what's going to happen because they're trying to appease. Okay, my minority status is being gay and disabled. One of those is being represented. The other one makes society pretty uncomfortable still. Yeah. You know, if you're in a wheelchair, you've got crutches, you've got a speech impediment, you've got a funny walk, you make people uncomfortable. Full stop. There is a new musical that got announced during last week, I don't know. Did you see that? No. About a wheelchair user, and it's actually an actor who is a wheelchair user is actually playing okay. a part in it. I think it was about a, a young man that um, got injured, and now he paints with his mouth. Um but they announced okay. it um, yeah. last 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 week. So, you know, and it pleases me to see that, you yeah. know, that, that it's not this kind of ableist thing anymore, and that we have yeah. people of true representation representing characters that that know that they know about. Who knows but these characters better than than the, than you know than these people? So. It's, I've, I've always found it very, very strange. Anyway, I interrupted yeah. you, sorry. Well, no, no, I was, I was just, um, I actually don't even know what my point was going to be, to be honest. As soon as you <laughs> mentioned the musical, it, short-term memory loss. What was it? I, I my, It was about the thing and representation and... Little well, Big Things, I think it's called. That's it. that's what it's oh, called. Okay. Oh, yes, I have heard of it. I have heard of it, but I, I didn't look into it because there was a song in Australia that was on a commercial. It was like, from little things, big things grow. If you're an Aussie listening to this, it's going to be stuck in your head all day. <laughs> so as soon as I saw that musical title, I thought, oh, no, trauma. Um, I, I, I Look, I don't remember what, what the thing was. Now, I, I've often thought that like if I'm going to have 
someone play me and that's there's there's two specific things there i generally don't care as long as you are nailing me like hang on that's let's let's take that back a little bit just as long because i've got you've probably noticed like i'm pretty animated yeah my arms are waving around a bit like i've got a certain excitement about you're a passionate man i am if you nail that i don't give a fuck what you look like really yeah yeah yeah. you know because at the end of the day there is stage and i'm sitting down to look at a lit up box it's film and tv that people seem to look at more for realism yeah because they bring that into the home with them yeah. And it's something that they watch and they rewatch again. So they look for a little bit more realism there, which I can look, I can understand. But the way I said, if I want to be represented, because I'm not that good, let's face it. If I want to be represented, I'm going to look in the mirror or turn my TV off and look at the screen. You know what I mean? I, I want to go on your journey. Yeah. But people think they can yeah. suspend their belief because it's theater and no one gives a shit. And I, and I, and I think yeah. that's very disrespectful to the craft for, for me is that, you know, a lot of people out there, a lot of performers out there are, are, are bringing truth on stage. You know, it's not a blasé thing yeah. and everything. They are bringing a lot and they don't get the respect that they should. Yeah, no, look, I, I and I, I say that and I, I'm, I promise you I don't mean to to say that with disrespect. I'm also looking at it from a craft. No, no not you. Not you saying okay. it. Okay, oh, sure. I'm saying it from audiences generally. Okay, yeah. Oh, look, yeah. And and that's the thing I, I rant about audiences all the time and the, the way they are reacting and they've got an ownership over the thing. Yeah. There was this whole thing recently about a black female king lear or something and the right wing were complaining about it and they're like oh this would never like i could never turn around and play Whoopi goldberg in a movie like well no you shouldn't play fucking Whoopi goldberg in a movie because Whoopi goldberg ain't fucking king lear that's a 400 year old fucking play you know shakespeare is a theatrical thing it's written theatrical so therefore anyone should be a child should be able to freaking perform king lear and it be taken seriously because that child if they're an artist yeah they're following their instincts and and they're tapping into that that's the way i see it and also who are people to decide what what if people can't adapt to pieces either nobody's the police on on that you know people have been adapting theater since time immemorial you know even before all of these issues have been raised that's it men were playing women yes. so <laughs> I, I i find it very 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 strange all of the all of these uh, attitudes i think a lot of anger i have seen that's come out is that a lot of people have a problem with period drama for some reason is that you know why are black actors or poc actors p- playing in dramas you know some of which are fictional stories some of which people have not done their history lessons on and not found out you know whether people of ethnic minorities were around at that time or could be possibly playing one of those characters could be feasibly playing those those characters but i think with with you know with, with with the increase of bridgerton and all these other you know period dramas and also with dev patel being in great expectations which i thought was a fantastic film there's been a lot more kind of anger about all of these issues and i find it very very funny yeah, and strange. Funnily enough, James Monroe Iglehart, who is a black American actor, came on this show and ranted about the Grease TV series, about the pink ladies and the T-birds being mixed. And when you listen to it, 
Like, it's it's a funny rant that he goes on, but it's Greece, so I don't give a shit, really. I'm noticeably quiet during that rant. Like, I don't agree with it at all. It doesn't faze me at all because I'm not watching Greece for realism. Well, I think Greece is a fictional story, number one. It's suspending a little bit of belief in the story. I mean, you have yes. the character of Teen Angel, a dreamlike sequence. And are, are we saying that people weren't, were, were, were all, you know, weren't integrated in schools in the 60s? I don't know. I, d- I don't necessarily agree that, pe- that they they may have been segregated, but I, yeah. I don't. I don't. I wouldn't accept that they weren't integrating at all. Yeah, I, I won't accept that a hundred percent of people were dicks back then. But just I'll throw in there though that a black Ariel does not bother me. What bothers me is why do mermaids have belly buttons if they don't have genitals? How are they giving birth? <laughs> For there to be an umbilical cord. Also, I hate that they changed the shell design booby. Like, otherwise, I'm sure she's brilliant. I haven't seen the film yet, and I cannot wait to see it because yeah. I hear she is brilliant in it. And the rest of the cast as well. And the rest of the cast, yeah. obviously. Um, although there's obviously been complaints about the makeup artist not being a queer makeup artist, which as a gay man, I'm just like, please, we've got enough to worry about at the moment without complaining about that. I hear a lot of that in, in the West End, you know, especially yep. on shows like The Lion King and on black shows that they don't have, you know, black makeup artists. And I know it's... That's different, though. I know it's different, but it's, it's a similar... It's a similar support mechanism, though, of everybody knowing. No, no, sorry, I, I completely understand. Yeah, for, for the listeners at home, though, it's, it's in terms about what not every white hairdresser does know what they are doing when it comes to sitting down and, and doing a black person's hair. I'm ignorant, right? So I don't know all of these details. When it comes to that particularly, that matters. When it comes to whether a man is gay or straight, putting your makeup on, that I don't, I don't think that matters personally. And that was one of the criticism in Little Mermaid, was it? Yeah. Right, okay. I've not seen it yet. No, neither have I. I'll wait till it comes on Disney Plus like I do with everything. <laughs> Anyways, let's move on because otherwise I could keep ranting about yep. all this stuff because society just drives me nuts. All right, so what is it about a role that would scare you enough to want to take it on? Oh, probably um, it being... Uh, do you know what? I saw The Cue and the Motive recently at the national and i and, it, and it's about the relationship between um john gilgood and richard burton when they did hamlet in on broadway and i just found it absolutely fascinating and the one of the reasons why i found it fascinating was that they were playing true characters and, and obviously this experience you know this experience happened but they were also doing performing shakespeare monologues on stage so you had a contemporary play of actors um you know playing but you know biographical characters but also performing shakespeare on stage so i think if you have a character that that is so demanding that has to do a monologue or a a solo on stage or a duet on stage and kind of be vulnerable and um and have a total emotional meltdown i think that's the, the the those are the demanding roles really when we did come fall in love, one of the opening scenes is that the father reminisces about being back home. And normally in a, in a musical, a show opens with an up-tempo, you know, big all dancing, all singing, you know, up-tempo number. We didn't do that. We opened up with a ballad, you know, and it was a, a ballad because the character was reminiscing. So we had to transport people to another place so they understood the path that we were taking. So and that's quite an emotional ride, you know, to try and create something in the opening scene. Because if you don't grab the audience in the opening scene and, you you, you know, you've not caught their attention, 
you've lost them. So I, that's quite a big that's quite a big responsibility to have, I think, in a show. And you can now understand why I sound like an absolute dork at the start of this show, just to grab people in straight away. Because they're like, how are you going to turn off when someone sounds like an absolute idiot in that introduction? Hey, it's your it's your overture, darling. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, all right, now standing ovations. What has been the mm. most electricity you've felt, but also the most nonchalance you've felt from a standing ovation? Most standing on the sky's edge at the National Theatre, which I watched this year, which is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in a long, long, long time. I think the standing ovation was probably about seven to eight minutes, but it was just exhilarating. And I, I, I urge everybody, if they can, I know it's finished at the National. I think it's been um, transferred into the West End next year. But standing at the sky's edge, I thought, thank the Lord someone out there is listening. And it's it was it's a it's a brand new musical. It's a British musical. Um, it's a story of integration. Um, it's a story of um, you know British British um, themes, um, and the music's fantastic. Um, and it, it won the Olivier for best musical this year as well so that's been the biggest stand, standing out I, 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 um, I can't remember the last thing I watched that was was kind of like I don't know a, a polar opposite everything these days it feels I, like. do you know what I, I, I generally get excited when I go to theatre and, and applaud everything you know left left, right and centre because yeah, I think you kind of appreciate the work that's being put on the stage so yeah. I, can't, I, I, I haven't got an answer to that I'm sorry very different answer than what we usually get from British guests because it's so common in America Oh, yeah, they love a standing up. Yeah. Oh, I know. Goodness gracious me. It just bleh, vomit all over the place. Sorry. Give, give it when it's earned. You've got less work to do if you've got them. So that kind of helps, you know. Yeah. But it's like, kind of a gentle encouragement that the audience are giving, which I think is which is nice. Yeah, I understand. We need to earn yeah. it, though, I think. We yes, need to earn it. You, you do. You, I think it's because it's, it's a thing. It is an actual thing. It's not the standard. The standard is to applaud. When you yeah. really enjoyed it, yeah, you shout a bit or you whistle. When it knocked you flying for a sixer and you can't help but leap to your feet, that's when they've earned it. And that's that's what it's for. And then you start throwing roses at them or something. Actually, don't, because that happened to Patty Lapone. <laughs> and we saw how that worked out. Anyways, now you've been involved in Come Fall in Love. I want to get it right. The Diwale Dalhania Le Jayanga. Did I say that right? Diwale Dalhania Le Jayanga. You did. Jayanga. Yeah, you did. I did pretty. I think good. that's why they changed it to "Come Fall in Love" so people could pronounce it properly. <laughs> yes, I think so. There's a hashtag of DDLJ the musical, basically, so they've abbreviated it to help okay. everybody. But the official name title is "Come Fall in Love." Uh, now, any word on financing for Broadway, or perhaps the West End, or are you not allowed to say? In which case, then obviously, yes, something's happening. I I don't know. I mean, we did our show from July of last year till October. They wanted to bring it into New York in March. I think another musical got the theatre they wanted, so then they couldn't open it in March. So I think they're waiting for maybe the Tonys or one of the shows to leave, and mm -hmm. then as soon as they get a theatre... Because, you know, grabbing a theatre is a very, very long process. Mm -hmm. It's the same system, I think, more or less in the, U in the UK, but there's a lot more owners in, in New York. So it's a very long and laborious process. They're very keen to bring it, but I think they just need to find the right theatre. And I think that's also important the, when we say right theatre in terms of capacity. You know, it has to be some 
has to be kind of a medium size, 1200, 1300 intimate space, not a large, large commercial, you know, Disney space. Yeah. So I think the, the, the capacity is a very, very um, crucial thing when they, when it comes to choosing the theater. But that's where I think that I think that's where they're at. Um, I don't get told anything. Yeah, no, fine. Um, the, the film it's based on for the listeners at home, um, as we were discussing before, it's you might have you sound, made it sound a lot like the sound of music, if you will, of India. But the way I read it described was the Rocky Horror because it's very <laughs> interactive. People like throw things at the screen and sing along to it and stuff like that. And it's oh, yeah. been running continuously, bar COVID, for a long time now. The the English translation because "Come Fall in Love" is actually the tagline from the um, poster, but the translated title is "The Big Hearted." Will take the bride. Yeah, it's been, so it's been running for eighteen years. So that's it's absolutely remarkable. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's the longest running cinema run as well. But mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't describe it as the Rocky Horror, Indian Rocky Horror. I describe it that's more Wikipedia as a, again. Is that, is that Wikipedia? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a, like a classic love love story, family story. So I don't know how, what yeah. comparison. I don't know maybe a four weddings and a funerally kind of thing. Uh, but it resonates. You know, it, it's resonated in India for a long, long time, you know, because of Shah Rukh Khan and Kajal, who are very famous actors over there. But it was also about the love for them, for them as actors. You know, at the time, Shah Rukh Khan, I think it was a turning point for him because he'd done lots of action films and nobody saw him in a romantic role. And obviously you had Omrish Puri as well playing the father, which is the part I play. He's a very iconic actor in India. He's more iconic with villains. You'll, re- you'll remember him in uh, Temple of Doom. He plays the leader in, in the Temple of Doom, the, the main body in, in the Indiana Jones Temple of Doom. So Amrish Puri had o- always been renowned for playing villains. And he was then put in a role playing a father, a more maternal character. So you had all of these kind of like polar opposites that people were used to. Um, and, and they liked that. And they saw different sides to actors as well. But this is very much a, a family and a generational story. And also India at the time was going through that transition into emerging economies, you know, going out into the world. The middle classes were growing. People could afford to travel as well. DDLJ, when you see the film, has many different locations. So it's like watching a Bond film. So people were corrupted by the locations when they saw that film. So it had everything for them. And it became this massive um, juggernaut of a, of, a, of a classic. And it doesn't surprise me that now it's being transposed to a stage musical. Yeah, that's it. Well, it's... um. For those who haven't seen a Bollywood film, they will tend to do like a cutaway to a musical number that will be filmed halfway around the world. I, I don't, I mean, just with all my heart, it's the craziest stuff. It's wonderful, though. And Limp Sick, too. They'll never sing live. They'll dance, but they'll, they will never sing live. Yep, that's it. What was the naughtiest you were as a pre-teen? We used to do this thing at school where we used to put cutlery in people's pockets and then... <sighs> Because I went to a, I went to a real kind of like old school bo- uh, British boarding school. Oh, brutal! Yeah, it was one of those, and uh, you used to do silly. Li- you know, when you institutionalize like that, it just leads you to silly juvenile things. Mm-hmm. So we used to put people cutlery in people's pockets, and then say, "Oh, they've run off with the cutlery," and just stupid things like that. Yeah, Very silly ju- juvenile things. Wow, I, I think of some of the stories people have told us on the show, and I think. Wow, I actually did get in some pretty big trouble. I was a shithead, apparently, when I was a child. Uh, anyway, no, I wasn't that bad. 
Uh, can you do any celebrity impersonations? Oh, uh, which ones do you want? Your best ones or the the worst ones because they're usually the funniest. Who do I do? I don't really do anybody. Um, I, I, I used to do like, I don't know if you have him in Australia, Ken Bruce. He's a Scottish radio DJ for BBC Radio 2. Hello, it's Ken Bruce here calling on BBC Radio 2. That was one impression I used to do. Oh, wonderful. Um, I don't know him, but yay. <laughs> I do a lot of voiceover work, so yeah, I did yeah. the voice of the plant, you know, for Little Shop of Horrors. Little Shop of Horrors, yes, I know. I bet Diane says hello, by the way. Oh, we did the Far Pavilions together. Did she tell you? Directed by Gail Edwards, one of your one of your Australian directors. Yes, wonderful. I've never is it's a female or a male? I've never seen them. I've, Who Gail? Yeah, I've never seen an image get, or get female. Eddie, okay, I know it's also a male's name. She directed Jesus Christ Superstar as well when it came to the UK. Yeah, I, see, I know that. I've always seen the name, but I've never seen the person. It's like a lot of the guests come in. I've heard you guys sing. I've never heard you talk, so I don't know what your talking voice sounds like, but I know what your singing <laughs> voice sounds. So that is often quite an experience. Okay, one of the impersonations I'm working on at the moment is I'm trying to do Goofy. I'll try that again. Golly! No, I can't do it now. Golly! Golly, Vicky! Golly! That's quite good. Because there's a thing like it, you've got to lower the throat down. Golly! No, I've lost it now. Uh, Anyways, where am I? Okay, making opportunities. Hmm. How important has that been across your career, especially given your position? You're, you're an actor of colour in England. You know, since advocating for representation, I've created groups, uh, databases, social groups. Basically, w- all the South Asian actors who sing are in one big group and we help each other out or we recommend gigs or if someone's looking for something, we, we say, are, are you available kind of thing. Um, so... I I I I feel very strongly that I think that's probably going to be my next transitional step going more down the creative line um, in a couple of years time and just helping I'm very active when it comes to these things that if there are jobs or if there is opportunities we have to get everybody involved and also if things are auditioning and people are not being auditioned why are they not being auditioned you know I know I know that um you know we've got great, we've got some great casting directors in the UK. We've got uh, I don't know if you know Jill Green who who casts Aladdin. You know she plays a very much a- active role outside of her circle of casting director and gets involved in you know in these support networks and everything. So there's a lot of people, a lot of you know a lot of people taking a um, a proactive stance. You know, but I think it's very and and I'll still do it still still help people and support people best best I can. Otherwise, you know, I, I've always thought that who do we pass this knowledge on to? You know, we've, you know, we've accumulated 25 years, 30 years, 35 years of, of knowledge in this industry. And what do we do? Do we just keep it static? Do we keep it on, you know, on one level? We, we need to, you know, we need to um, encourage and promote and uh, support the younger, the emerging generation. And there's lots of them, by the way. There's hundreds of them uh, who are all really, really good. So that will be one of my next big roles. Awesome. Well, that actually leads into my final question. Who would be some younger upcoming uh, South Asian performers or even Southeast Asia or just all through Asia performers that are coming up in the West End that you feel we should look out for? In the West End, um, you've got a great guy called Luca Patel. He was a young male lead on Broken Wings. 
Um, you've got a girl called Blythe Jandu who's just doing Gypsy at the moment at Pit Lockery. Um, another potential leading lady. Heba as well, I think, who's an absolute, um, you know, huge, huge talent. I know she's more meaner than meaner than uh, South Asian. Um, I try to get everybody <laughs> if I can. Um, in America, you've got this guy called uh, Vishal Vadia. You want to hear this guy sing. I work with him on the Come Fall in Love. He is unbelievable. He just did um, uh, the Sondheim musical. A company? Uh, no, not company. The other one. Or Into the Woods. No, the other one. I always forget it. Sweeney Todd. No, not that one. Keep going. Oh, he's had a few over the past few years. What? The, the, the relationships. Uh, really? Merrily, there you go. He just Merrily, did that. Really and well. um, yeah. if you want to look out for someone, look out for him because he is phenomenal vocally, um, performs well on stage, and uh, you know, look out for him. Um, yeah. So those are those are my, you know, people to you know people to look out for. And I do see you know agent sh um, showcases, drama school showcases, seeing the upcoming talent, and if I can offer my advice and support or a lot of them a lot of people join our groups as well that we have support groups um i'm always being asked questions all the time nearly every day especially like around auditions and things like that everybody wants you know some help and i mean i'm just giving you a small pick of the bunch there there's about 20 30 50 60 there's a massive massive talent pool massive talent pool and Aussie produces a massive fucking talent pool of Indigenous Australian performers, which you should be using in your own fucking country. But anyways, I'll just throw that in there. Thank you so much. It has been an absolute joy. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. I know you were terrified to come on this show. No. Lucas at home has been putting this off for two years because he's been terrified. No, I have not been terrified. We've never, we've yeah. never managed to sort it out. That's that was it. the only problem. But now... We were waiting for Disney, actually. We were waiting for Disney to get up off their ass and put that fucking pro shot on Disney Plus, but they never did. So I'm like, no, nah, okay. We booked James Munro. You know, it's directed by uh, by an Australian as well. Which one? Aladdin. Uh, the, the, the live capture, yeah. Oh, was, oh, okay. Oh, wow. Oh, see, Aussies, we are... Everywhere. We, we're getting jobs in foreign countries. Shit, can't get jobs in our own countries. <laughs> Anyways, where can people find you on the social medias? Uh, at Irvin Iqbal on Twitter, um, at Irvin Iqbal on Instagram. Um, and that's it, yeah. really. I think I'm just on those two. Anyways, a huge, huge thank you to Irvine for joining me. You may have noticed there was no co-host this week. I didn't really mention it at the start like I normally do. It was just timing that worked out. Spencer will be up next week with another guest from Hollywood. So it's going to happen every now and then. Now, I'm not going to go into it too much because I don't want to spend too much time talking here. Obviously, it's the end of the episode. I'm sure you've already listened to enough of me rambling. Three times past guest JX, Jonathan X, technical director, director from Hollywood. He wrote something recently called The Whims of Opportunity, a reflection on tokenism in Hollywood, George Floyd edition. So I'm just going to read through it as quickly as I can, because whilst it's not my voice, it's not my story to tell, what he wrote touched a nerve with me, given what we've spoken about in this episode. But again, I absolutely love Jonathan X as a friend, as a collaborator, as a guest, as an artist. So anyways... On the anniversary of the public execution of George Floyd, I had to share my experience, JX's experience, with his Hollywood 
bubble reaction. I'll say it in how he's written it, sorry. I was celebrating my 33rd year as a freelancer after the NABET strike of 1987 I relocated to Los Angeles and began anew. I had put in countless hours honing my craft, building a solid network of clients, and earning enough to support my family, buy a home, and put my children through college. Life was good, and I relished the fruits of my labor. Little did I know my storybook Hollywood perspective was about to change. The murder of George Floyd shook the industry, igniting a wave of social outcry that reverberated through every corner of my world. In Hollywood, an industry known for its glamour and grandeur, the effects were particularly in social media, pronounced. Oddly enough, the aftermath of this tragedy had an impact on my freelance career, but not in the way I'd expected. Out of the blue, I found myself inundated with corporate outreach from production entities that had previously eluded my grasp. Suddenly, I was fielding multiple Zoom calls and engaging in getting-to-know-you interviews, at first, I was taken aback and unsure of what was happening. Was this a stroke of luck? A moment of serendipity after years of effort and outreach? I couldn't help but feel a glimmer of hope. As the interviews progressed, however, a nagging feeling crept into my consciousness. The corporate response, in parentheses, Blackout Tuesday, to the George Floyd murder had prompted a re-evaluation of internal diversity, equity, and inclusion practices. I slowly began to realize that I had become the token element they sought to tick off on their checklist. My very existence had made me the perfect candidate to alleviate corporate guilt. While I continued to engage in those interviews, I couldn't shake the sense of unease. I had worked hard to earn these sudden opportunities, but the circumstances under which they were presented left a bitter taste in my mouth. I had become a pawn in a game of corporate optic, a means to appease a guilty conscience rather than a genuine effort to open doors. A knee-jerk reaction. Days turned into weeks, and weeks turned into months, but the promised opportunities failed to materialize. The silence was deafening, and I was left wondering if I had been played. Was I merely a box to be checked off on their diversity and inclusion scorecard? Did they ever genuinely consider me for the roles they dangled before me during those interviews? Or was it all just a performance to make them feel better about themselves? The truth was a bitter pill to swallow. The false allyship the insincere efforts and the token outreach were no different than a knee on my neck. The irony was not lost on me. In fighting against systematic oppression and racism, I found myself ensnared in a different kind of trap, one that weaponized my identity and used me because of it. I had hoped that these interviews would be the key to a new door opening, an opportunity to take my career to the next level, but in the end, I would have preferred if they had never called at all. For false allies and insincere efforts do not advance the cause of diversity and inclusion. I'm going to say that again. For false allies and insincere efforts do not advance the cause of diversity and inclusion. They only perpetuate the same oppressive systems they claim to fight against. As a freelancer in Hollywood, I remain steadfast in my commitment to my craft. I refuse to let the whims of opportunity, tokenism, performative allyship, and hollow jesters dampen my passion or stifle my voice. I will continue to create, to tell stories that reflect the richness and diversity of the human experience, and I hope that one day the industry will genuinely embrace change, not as a momentary trend, but as a permanent transformation 
that celebrates the talent and contributions of all individuals. That's signed at JX Director. So go follow Jonathan on Twitter or Instagram and read that post and spread that post because quite frankly, he's fucking right, man. He's so done right. And that's what I was trying to say in that episode that this performative shit, it's embarrassing. You're not helping at the end of the day. So anyways, on that note, you can find us at Thrush and Treasure or at Thrush and Treasure Podcast, also on YouTube and Patreon at Blooming Theatricals. Uh, Buy the Toniston Tales, read the Toniston Tales, that'd be awesome. Uh, as well as check out details below for tickets to see Matt's show, Almost Eurovision or Song Contest, it's called now. It used to be called Almost Eurovision. It's now called Song Contest. It's going to be on in a couple of days' time in Mackay, Queensland. So if you're in that area, go check that out. Or if you're in the Utah area, go check out Mr. J Wags as Willy Wonka in Charlie and the Chuck Factory at the Tuacan Amphitheatre in St. George. So anyways, I think that's everything. I'm not sure. Spencer will be back next week. Check out his podcast and the Ego Goes too, because the Tony Awards are coming up. And good luck to past guest Gareth Owen, who is nominated for And Juliet. Anyways, that's it from us. You take care. Thank you so much for listening. And we shall see you next time. Lovely. Hooroo. Take care, buddy. Bye. You may hear my stomach. I'm very hungry. I've had one croissant since I woke up. <laughs> so I very apologize. I can hear it rumbling. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs>